Hello and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about film within the confines of a theme that changes from episode to episode. Um, I'm Joe Gastineau and joining me this week as usual, back from his travels, is a mighty fine vlog, Seth Davis. How are you doing, sir? Hi, I'm great, thanks. Um, how was your time away? It's very nice, spent three weeks in America, um, came back with a beard. Yes, I can vouch for the beard. Mighty and fulsome beard. <laughs> it's good, we have a kind of matching kind of pair of beards, but yours is a, a better colour, I feel. Uh, the, the fair hair... Uh, he's not fair to the beard, but whereas you're kind of that kind of darker thing going on. Very much a sea captain-y sort of I like uh, it. I like it. It's good. Um, this week, or month, I should say, uh, to celebrate the um, arrival of Docfest to Sheffield, where we uh, record this podcast, uh, we are choosing for our theme uh, the topic of truth. Uh, so we'll be talking about documentaries and mockumentaries and biopics and other such nonsense uh, as that, and I will get things started by um, laying straight into the the biopic genre. Mm. Uh, it's uh, generally a um, uh, area of films that I can't fucking stand. I find them predictable, lame, award baiting nonsense, um, with very few exceptions. Uh, discuss. Um, yeah, I think on th- on a whole, I do agree with you because I think it, it depends on the person involved really because uh, both the subject matter and the director because I think if you have the right person the right combination of the two you can end up with something really interesting you know if someone has a really fascinating life story and someone has an interesting take on it mm-hmm. then it can be can be great you know I just uh, came up with a few here um, I think the one that leaps out to me would be something like 24 hour party people which mm-hmm. uh, combines the um, sort of slightly maverick spirit of Michael Winterbob with the maverick spirit of uh, of Tony Wilson um, and by essentially adopting a sort of fourth wall breaking postmodern style they're able to offer this uh, interesting vision of the music scene in Manchester in a way that doesn't at any point feel kind of stuffy or, or boring mm. but you know sometimes you'll get things like you know, say the the film that immediately leapt to mind when I was trying to think of biopics that I don't particularly care for was um, Ali, the Michael Mann directed film about Muhammad Ali. I mean, it's a shame that one because I mean I agree with you. It's not it's not very good, but it's such great material in the hands of a great director mm. and with a generally very good central performance by Will Smith. Yeah, and um, what I like about Ali, the one thing I do like about Ali which is a massive problem I have with the biopic genre, is that Ali focuses on a small period of Ali's life, which yeah. I prefer massively to the born, life, death structure that mm. um, most biopics kind of go for. Yeah. Because it's they feel like they have to talk about it, whereas if you just focus on one area of someone's life, it's yeah. immediately more focused and more interesting. But what it suffers from, and I think that this is a big problem, what is perhaps overdue rever- reverence for the subject matter. Yeah. Because, like, as I said, the, 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 the thing that's quite good about 24-hour party people is it kind of views all of its characters in a slightly, sort of, sort of slightly askance. They're not, it's not 100% behind any of the people in it you know it doesn't portray Sean Ryder as you know a paragon of, of virtue, <laughs> virtue or a uh, or you know necessarily the songwriting genius that everyone thinks that he is you know it, it kind of, it's very it's very funny in its portrayal of it and you know it, it captures how pompous Tony Wilson is 
But it's not afraid to make its its subjects look stupid either. To exactly, yeah. people. I remember when that film came out, or was about to be made, possibly, and someone asked Peter Hook what he thought about Steve Coogan playing Tony Wilson, and he said, well, it's the biggest cunt in Manchester playing the second biggest cunt in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> Which I always thought was... Uh, they should have put that on the yeah. poster. Yeah. But another problem is perhaps when people try and pave over the cracks of you know someone's life... Um, for me, one of the absolute best biopics is um, Malcolm X by the Spike Lee film, yeah, yeah. because I think that film is a hundred percent committed to committed to depicting Malcolm X as like close to how he was as possible, not really sanding off the edges of him at all, and presenting him as a very as a difficult you know historical figure, really a man who had a lot of opinions that you know not everyone agreed with at the time or now who went through a lot of philosophical and religious changes over the course of his life and doesn't really try and tell you how to think about him it does leave you leave it up to the viewer to decide you know who Malcolm X was yeah and I think that a lot of biopics take exactly the opposite approach they basically say this person was great they almost never did anything wrong you know you should love them and right. that's I think you know that's a problem that a lot of biopics don't get over really have you seen um, My Week with Marilyn uh, yes yeah I watched it the other day I thought it was shit uh, or just well, not shit because you have to res- kind of stand back and respect the kind of uh, the craftsmanship of the, the acting, the acting and, yeah but it just so so like many of those films, just so functional and just mm. just oh great. I mean that and that itself, that whole little story, is kind of very interesting. But it just didn't come alive at all. Yeah. It just seemed really kind of flat and boring. Um, but one uh, moving on, uh, one um, example of a biopic that I can is it biopic or biopic? I've always said biopic, but I've heard other people say yeah. Bio-pic. Biopic sounds like an operation, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, I've heard of biopic. But anyway, um, one biopic that I really like, which is the exception to the rule, uh, I think is uh, Bird, the Clint Eastwood uh, film about Charlie Parker. Mm. Um, in terms of moving away from that structure of having someone when they're born, then focusing on their childhood, and then you know just going through the gears of uh, of kind of getting it, you know, a story that everyone knows on the screen. It does his childhood, his adolescence, and everything, which was very interesting in real life, in the title sequence, and it's over. And then as the film starts, we're with him in the kind of his adult life, mm-hmm. um, and it's really, really interesting, fascinating, and it also features a performance from Forrest Whitaker, which is not, which is what really bugs me about biopics and impersonation. Right. Yeah. Because I hate it when uh, they kind of try too hard to do the person they're playing yeah. I think Walk the Line and, and Ali are, are good exceptions where they could have been a lot worse they could yeah. have been just straight impersonations um, and Raging Bull of course was yeah. uh, a you know, very good example but um, it it really does hamper most films like that when there is uh, a kind of uh, straight impersonation yeah. rather than a performance they spend so long capturing the mannerisms that they don't really try and engage with them as a they forget to character. act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which is which is you know when your film is based around a, a central performance, a central character. If you disengage with them, then you you're lost. Yeah. I think a good example of that um, 
would be Anthony Hopkins in Nixon, the Oliver Stone film, as an example of someone who doesn't do that because Anthony Hopkins looks nothing like Richard Nixon yeah. and the film doesn't attempt to turn him into Richard Nixon. Um, and he also it also doesn't... Uh, they don't have him like try and do a pitch-perfect vocal impression of him. What they try to do is try to capture the essence of Nixon as a man you know his paranoia his his insecurities and uh, the style I think that what I really like about Nixon as a film is it, it everything about it is geared towards trying to create the mindset of you know this man who harboured terrifying delusions about the, the, the way the world worked but it also tries to engage with the you know the, the the things that he did well in his thing. You know, opening up China. You know, war on cancer, mm. all that sort of thing. War on cancer. Well, yeah, he was one of the first, he was one of the, the the he put loads of money into cancer research and he helped create the um, healthcare system that exists in America today. You know, flawed though it may be, um, and you know it tries to offer you every kind of facet of him, but it doesn't. Again, like in like, like any good biopic, it doesn't try and you know make him out to be a a perfect man, which obviously Oliver Stone wouldn't be because I think he has some fundamental ideological different differences Just, with. Um, yeah. uh, how do you think that compares with something like uh, J J Edgar, which has got a big crossover with Nixon? Because obviously mm. J Edgar Hoover in Nixon is played by Bob Hoskins, is it? Yes. Um, have you seen J. Edgar, the new film? No, I haven't seen that one. Right, we're completely unqualified to uh, talk about it, but I hear it's bad. Yeah, I've heard that it's overly reverent um, and that it takes someone who is arguably the most one of the most fascinating figures of the 20th century and treats it in a fairly lifeless way. And, you know, right. he is one of the most divisive figures. You know, what, what he meant in terms of American civil liberties and the power that was wielded by one man essentially over over American security for 40 odd years or something he died in the early 70s mm. you know before um, before uh, Deep Throat <laughs> ended up being put in charge of the uh, the FBI following his death um, documentaries tend to do biographies much much better than um, mm. uh, you know kind of straight narrative films yeah. because they don't have to go through that whole uh artifice of creating someone from scratch speaking of documentaries Ed um, you've identified two kind of schisms of the uh, of the documentary uh, kind of stylistically um, and you kind of wanted to talk a little bit about how they kind of differ or vary or how they go up against each other yeah sure well, in, in preparation for this you know and thinking about documentaries I kind of thought that there seemed to be uh, I mean, there's a there's a spectrum that you can can look at on this, but broadly speaking, you have what what's known as the cinema verite style of documentaries, you know, literally truthful cinema, um, which was pioneered by, uh, amongst others, the Maisel brothers and uh, Barbara Koppel in the 60s and 70s, which is where you kind of present an unvarnished uh, version of events and of people um, as much as it's possible to do, where you're still you know editing stuff together. Um, so no voiceovers, no, no talking to the camera, no, no documentary yeah, it, on camera. Exactly. Um, I think s some of the Maisel stuff kind of blur. It, it kind of breaks those rules because they're off screen asking questions, but it's still not presented as a. It's it, it's kind of 
like home movie essentially but you know with the structure of, of a film um, on the other end you have documentaries that are very clearly structured to present a viewpoint you know they have um, voiceover they have uh, uh, the, the documentarian on camera a lot of time and I think that there's um, a, they're not necessarily I don't think that one is wrong and, and, or better than the other I think there's, there's great examples of both but I, what I wanted to know is, is do you think that there is there is something more truthful in cinema verite or than the one where someone is clearly manipulating it um, it's yeah I mean it's difficult because in a sense someone like Michael Moore who would exist at the other end of the spectrum to the measles um, you know he, he kind of stamps himself on every frame he's in the documentary he's the, the force that drives it I don't really consider him a documentary maker no. I consider him a kind of polemicist uh, someone who has a viewpoint and as irresistible as some of his viewpoints are you, you're you not going to get a balanced film no. out of uh, what you see his films are very entertaining and very well done and for what he does I think he's exceptionally talented but um, you are not getting any kind of truth out of it whereas something like Salesman is it feels very distant from uh, you know I, I don't even know what Albert Maisel's looked like I think I bumped into him and Morgan Spurlock which was the, the two uh, end of the spectrum because they were both guests at Dotfest last year and they were in the cafe around the corner um, and uh, yeah I mean that kind of says whereas Morgan Spurlock and Michael Moore are kind of personalities that drive a documentary uh, down the scale kind of Nick Broomfield is someone who is very much in his documentaries and drives them with his personality but he he takes a step back from I never feel like what he's doing is a stunt no. or uh, he's doing it for an effect Louis Theroux is very much kind of in that area as well um, but I, just by putting themselves in front of the camera and just by um, inserting their viewpoint um, explicitly into the narrative of the documentary um, th I think they immediately make themselves less truthful than the mm. verite stuff that's interesting um, another example I think of someone who perhaps is is uh, m has a similar sort of remove but is perhaps, in fact is, is kind of even more removed than, than Broomfield and, and Louis Theroux I think would be um, Errol Morris uh, director of amongst other things Tabloid The Thin Blue Line um Gates of Heaven, Vernon, Florida, Vernon, Florida, um, because what he essentially does, and I think it's it's very interesting the way he does it, is he presents stuff to you. He presents, you know, the interview subjects. Very rarely puts them into context, except you know where necessary. And his his kind of strongest editorial choice is to remove himself from the editorial process. Um, the most you kind of hear is he will ask a question, usually screamed for some reason, which I find very odd. Well, because it's because, I can tell you why that is, he um, pioneered uh, the device where it's kind of like a, an auto-cue an auto that a newsreader reads where they can look into the camera and have the reflection of the, um, the what they're reading over the top. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't look like they're reading and they're looking straight into the camera. Well, Errol Morris will sit in another room or far away and he will have a two. He'll have a camera pointing at himself and a camera pointing at them. So his subjects can look right into the lens of the camera mm. and see Owen Morris's face. Yeah. But they are 
talking straight into camera. Yeah. Oh, which interesting. Is, and it's got a name. It's, I think he, he called it, him and his wife invented it, I think he's called it the Truthoscope or something. They right, it, right. Because it allows you to really... And he doesn't do it in his earlier films like um, Dim Blue Line, yeah. but the uh, the best way he's ever done it is um, in The Fog of War. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because you really get into the kind of heart of that man in the centre of that film, uh, Matt Namara, Robert Matt Namara. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably why he screams his questions because he is at the other end of a room. Mm. Uh, they can't see him, so they feel connected in a way. Yeah, but he's not there. Yeah, so there is a def. I mean, that does make complete sense with the the way that his films are constructed, really, because um, his most recent film, Tabloid, um, is has that that very sort of sense because he's talking to all these people involved in this uh, news story in the seventies about. A woman who may have kidnapped a Mormon man and forced her, him to have sex with her, or maybe it was consensual. And he just presents all of the different viewpoints and different interpretations, and doesn't really seem to lean on any one of them. And I think that's kind of the thing that's really interesting about all of his films is he does offer he offers viewpoints, but he doesn't necessarily impose his own upon it. Or if he does, it's in a very kind of subtle way or you know I think um, something like the thin blue line there is a viewpoint in it but that's that kind of emerges as a result of the way in which the investigation into the documentary was done because you know for people who don't know the thin blue line was where he was invest he, he investigated the case of a young man who was arrested for them for a murder of a policeman and a Texas policeman and over the course of it they actually found the guilty man and got the the, the um, conviction overturned in the end. Well, the the film ends with the the wrongly convicted man still in prison. Yeah, but, but there's a there's a postscript. Yeah, there's postscripts that yeah the guy who actually did it, you know, gets fingered for the crime and yeah, yeah you know they they basically solve a case the police weren't interested in because they were just in interested doing. in getting someone behind bars because a cop had died and they needed to solve it as quickly as possible. Yeah, um, I mean it was that case was full of holes and there was mm. no real witness there was no real evidence but yeah. they kind of got him because he was just drifting through town I think he was an easy target to go for but uh, it's very interesting about um, Errol Morris is that he does present his facts like that uh, he also uses uh, which is something that you know works sometimes in documentaries but other times doesn't he uses a lot of reconstruction mm. um, which is something that James Marsh does a lot yeah. the guy who did uh, Man on Wire and Project uh, Project Nim mm-hmm. um, I keep wanting to call it Finding Nimmo <laughs> <laughs> and because of the Project X um, yeah, I'm just getting confused um, but um, yeah they use uh, reconstruction a lot and reconstruction in documentaries kills me I a lot of the time it's terrible and I think it's because it's used in television a lot, yeah, um, and it's done badly. But where you've got James Marsh, who is before he was a documentarian, was an accomplished narrative filmmaker, uh, made some very very good films. No, have you seen uh, the King? Yeah, the King. That's a really cool kind of lo-fi, southern gothic type film. Um, but yeah, he when he does his reconstructions, it adds a complete um, different element to it. Like Man on Wire becomes a, a heist film, yeah, almost with its own thrust which kind of drags you into this kind of uh, mm. story so wh- where do where do people who use reconstruction stand on that scale of, of verite to to i don't know what we kind of call the other end of the spectrum kind of stunt documentary i making. think it depends on the way in which they do it because i think that the, the difference between you know um 
what James Marsh does and what Errol Morris does and like I don't know Crime Watch. You know the difference. <laughs> the difference between them. I think. I think there's something kind of almost expressionistic about what they do because the, the the reconstructions in Man on Wire are you know some of them are you know actors shot against you know elaborate uh, sort of no not elaborate sort of minimalistic sets and things like that. Mm. And so, so there, it's it's kind of more trying to convey the sense of what was going on, rather than being kind of like literal, rather than yeah. literal. And similarly, in the Thin Blue Line, you know, um, there's lots of repeated reconstruction of these the, the same incident, the moment, the moment in which the man is shot. But you know, they use lots of very uh, cinematic angles, and they don't show people's faces, and they show kind of like objects in close up. And they do lots of slight variations on on the the event to kind of illustrate different people's perspective or, or point of view which is it's a very smart and interesting way of doing that mm, yeah um, uh, I think doing it that way I think is, is closer to maybe trying to seek some sort of you know sort of maybe an artistic truth than uh, just kind of pat uh, reconstruction you know it's, it's not you know quotidian or anything like that it's very much trying to get at some sort of something more uh, ephemeral really so I think that it's 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 a big move away from cinema verite because it's you know it's it's the exact opposite of trying to depict something in a in a realistic fashion, mm. but at the same time it kind of doubles back on itself because it's not really kind of doing the stunt thing either. It's 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 more lyrical in a way. I think um, Werner Herzog is someone who does a lot of that sort of thing as yeah, well. Yeah, I was just going to bring up Werner Herzog. Where where does he kind of sit on that? that that scale because he's his I don't know whether to say his personality is so odd and his worldview so unique that whenever he does a film he he only ever really focuses on things that would be mm. you know like Grizzly Man yeah. and Werner Herzog are a dream combination Grizzly Man would 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 have been functional in someone else's hands even yeah. if it was someone like a James Marsh or something like that but in Werner Herzog hand, hands it's something way more interesting mm, because he's he sees something greater in it than than necessarily what appears on the surface. He doesn't just see a story of a man being killed by a bear. He sees it as a, a, a contemplation on the nature of man's relationship with with the world, with the broader world, and the way we see animals and sort of see something more spiritual, which you also see in um, Into the Abyss, his uh, prison documentary. I've not seen that one. It's is it good. It is good, yeah. It's is it a TV series? Is they, have they broken it down for TV? Or? What, the way they did it was uh, Into the Abyss focuses on one case. Right. And uh, it's an hour and a half long, and they did a TV series called Death Row, which each uh, one episode focuses on a different prisoner. Right. And so each one they talk about the case and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, Death Row is. Uh, the, sorry, Into the Abyss is more focused on um, the death penalty in general not what necessarily what Herzog thinks about it although in the opening of it he basically says I think it's wrong I don't think anyone has any right to take another person's life the least of all the state because of his uh, you know his history because of his country's uh, history he doesn't he doesn't view that as, as a moral thing to do mm. but he presents the different opinions of the people who are involved in this uh, this double murder or triple murder um, you know the families, the people involved, and what they think about what's going to happen to this this young lad who's going to get uh, who's going to be executed for his involvement in the crime. Um, it's very good. It's very powerful. Um, 
it's uh, it's interesting as a mediation a meditation on uh, what what imprisonment means really right and you know it's it's, it's very much the, the thing that Herzog does a lot which is sort of man in extremists you know sort of putting people in an extreme situation and seeing what that reveals about them on a deeper level um it's very interesting to talk about uh, Herzog because um he's someone who's actually admitted to to making things not making things up but doing very obvious reconstructions in his documentaries right okay um i think the the obvious one because we've mentioned it grizzly man is when he talks to the mortician yeah which is very airless and stagey because he's get he's clearly getting the guy to kind of go through things in a in a slightly unnatural way but he says that that is in, in pursuit of an ecstatic truth which is what he's always <laughs> ecstatic truth what he's always pursuing in everything he does you know some sort of greater something greater than the subject itself um, interestingly about Werner Herzog we're talking about a filmmaker who isn't specifically a documentarian but makes very interesting documentaries um, we're seeing last uh, month we talked about uh, somewhat controversially according to some people Martin Scorsese being in need of a comeback he yeah. has in the last few years kind of rediscovered his kind of love affair with the documentary because in the good old days he used to do a feature and then a documentary mm -hmm. or you know a couple of features and then a documentary with kind of good regularity and now he's kind of got back into that with uh, he did the Bob Dylan documentary did the blues project that everyone and his mum did um, then he did uh, the George Harrison one more recently didn't he and he's, yeah. he's he's got a whole raft of I think he's the, the Rat Pack documentary is, is, is something that might be on the way as well um, I and I really like seeing a narrative filmmaker make a documentary um, with you know Spike Lee is another one I mean he he's done two very very good documentaries uh, when the levees broke and uh, four little girls, which I'll probably say were up there with his best work. Mm. Um, do you I, think it's easy to go the other way to go a documentary maker to make a feature or a feature maker to make a documentary? I think um, it's probably easier to go from narrative to documentarian because it's all essentially storytelling, mm. just that the discipline's slightly different and it's just kind of assembly. It, it, it seems to be more kind of um, going from. You know, the editing becomes more because you're you're maybe taking archival footage and, and constructing things more. Yeah. But the discipline from documentary, if you've only made documentaries to making features, I think would be quite different. Also, because I think documentarians, as a rule, tend to have maybe greater control over what they do. Yeah. Um, and greater control over shaping the overall vision whereas if you put them in a narrative situation you know there's so many other factors that go into it yeah i imagine that they wouldn't have pressure from studios or producers saying i think this is what people will like change mm -hmm. it yeah they have to say well hang on you need to tell the story of someone yeah. and, or uh, something we know happened just kind of do it one example i can think of of when uh, uh documentary makers make a feature film and it's fucking awful is um the guys at uh, Berlin Durinsonovsky who made uh, Paradise Lost, a, a, an amazing uh, documentary about uh, kind of uh, ritualistic child murders, uh, directed the Blair Witch Two. Project sequel, yeah. which is beyond terror. Have you seen it? Uh, years it's ago. Reprehensible, yeah, it's awful. reprehensible film. Um, but I mean, I've got no real idea what they were thinking. I can, I can know what maybe the people who 
who gave them the job were thinking. Yeah. But no idea what they were thinking as a as a, as a kind of of a pair. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, how do you feel about Scorsese's documentary work in comparison to his uh, narrative stuff? In recent years, I definitely think that that's kind of the more substantial, the more interesting thing that he's done. Mm. Um, you know, the the Bob Dylan documentary is a is you know fascinating attempt to try and shine a light on someone who's you know quite enigmatic despite his 50 years in the public eye yeah um his george harrison documentary is you know a great great insight i think it they they show kind of a rigor in their storytelling that i think has been lost from some of his narrative films maybe because he feels more willing to kind of stick to the bare the bare the bones of what happened really and, and follow it more stringently right okay Perhaps, or maybe because he has, I think maybe he's he's more interested personally in something like Bob Dylan, who mm. he he, he idolises and is such an important part of you know of you know the culture that he grew up in, or George Harrison, than you know a remake of a Hong Kong thriller or you know an adaptation of a Dennis Lehane novel. You know he's probably more emotionally invested in making sure that in in telling those stories yeah um i wonder if he's given the license to do the documentaries as a kind of to appease him for some of the, the project choices he's making because he's very much he's kind of moving into that kind of high-end genre of filmmaking mm-hmm. isn't it he's you know uh, i can't really think of a film he's done maybe from the aviator that what there wouldn't isn't a kind of a genre film i guess no, recently. not since not since uh, did I bringing out the dead? Would you say that was his last non-genre? Yeah, probably. Uh, that's kind of a dark comedy, but you know, it's not. You know, that's more of an aesthetic than a, than yeah. a genre. Um, yeah, I'd say so. That's pro- but even so, you know, that that gets into the ground of whether or not awards bait counts as a uh, a genre. Or is a, bio- a genre is a biopic as well. Oh yeah, it is yes. Uh-huh. Uh, um, one thing I've noticed. Um, which I mean, documentaries nowadays. And when I say nowadays, I mean the kind of two thousands are far more uh, saleable as a as a as a cinematic product than they used to be. Mm. Um, I mean, I think up until uh, Bowling for Columbine, um, the most successful documentary of all time was Roger and Me. Yeah. And before that, I mean, their films they didn't make a lot of money, but now documentaries can and do make a lot of money. Um, it's interesting to see um, that the documentary aesthetic has kind of permeated uh, not only kind of mainstream cinema. Um, with I mean, I seem to remember that they use kind of uh, the kind of documentary look on things like Transformers Three. You get a lot of kind of racking focuses and those the kind of draw attention to the fact yeah. that the, the footage is there. But also, there's a kind of been a boon in uh, mockumentary filmmaking and also uh, more recently the kind of found footage. Um, films, especially with regards to horror films and things like that, um, I think it's getting a bit lame. Mm. Um, what do you think about how uh, that aesthetic has kind of been uh, uh, diluted to the point of now not really meaning anything? I think it's it's the same with anything when a, a particular form becomes popular. It's not necessarily a problem with the form itself so much as the fact that people latch onto it as a way to make bad ideas. <laughs> right. Um, okay. I think the, the another example of, of something similar happening in sort of recent years was the the CGI animation boom that um, followed 
Toy Story. Mm. Um, you know, initially it was just it was a Pixar only game. Then DreamWorks again, and then all these other studios. And there there was a point where it seemed that any CGI animation film would be a success yeah. because it was a novelty. Yeah, and then people just started making terrible CGI animation films and they started like dropping off and you know the absolute idea of that was Mars Needs Moms which was released last year with a massive flop Um, and I think that that's kind of reaching the point now where the people maybe are getting a bit warier of it because you know after the I think you know this current wave was kind of kicked off by Paranormal Activity, which is a, yeah. a decent, effective little shocker. A very, a very uh, interesting study in how you can get an audience to watch what's essentially just a blank space on a screen mm. waiting for something to happen. Yeah, um, and a lot of it's rubbish, but yeah. it's very effective. Yeah, um, it, what it, it does, it, it does what it intends to do, and it, it, you know, it got a lot of reaction from people, uh, and. Um, and it's, it's quite scary. It is quite scary, yeah. yeah. Um, large. It's amazing how large stretches of nothing really can be yeah. quite terrifying in the right context. Mm-hmm. And the sequels do the, a similar sort of trick, um, arguably with uh, diminishing returns, until they hired the guys who made Catfish to make the third one, and uh, they came up with the idea of sticking a camera on a ceiling fan, right, which okay. uh, gave it a, a dynamism that was missing from the uh, static okay. shots of the previous ones. Yeah. Um, but I think you know it's getting to the point now where I think people that people are starting to, to try and think of more interesting ideas, more or, or genres to attach it to because you know you had uh, two found footage horrors released on the same weekend, both of which flopped um, either early I think it was late last year, which were um, Shark Night 3D and Apollo 18. Yeah, was Shark Night a found footage film? Yeah. Wow, pretty sure it was. Maybe it was just shit. <laughs> it pretty... has become uh, found footage has become a synonym for for shitness, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. which is a shame, really, because I do think it's something that can be interesting. Like you know, we had Chronicle earlier this year, the superhero one, which had a, an interesting take on it. And I think it's it's not a problem with the form, but people are kind of thinking it is. Mm-hmm. To put it in a kind of a. a relation to to television another example of this would be the way in which the the free camera sitcom has now become associated with bad comedy yeah because there were a raft of really bad three camera sitcoms in the early 2000s mm-hmm. uh and now there's this kind of thing which makes you think if it's got a laugh track and if it's or if it's people on a, what's clearly a set it mm-hmm. must be terrible regardless it's of whether the big it, bang theory regardless yeah. of whether or not it's well written whereas if it's a single camera it must be you know m- more worthwhile whereas you know I think that that's not necessarily true no. um, I think if you look at something like How I Met Your Mother which is a well written show that has interesting ideas and plays with the format a bit more but you know people see it and think oh it's people on what is clearly a set in front yeah. of an audience which is not actually because the way they film that show is uh, apparently it takes they, they shoot like 80 scenes per episode which is a lot for something that's meant to be like an audience and lots of different sets and I think one of the creators said it was clo- if they did it in front of an audience it would become a hostage situation because they'd have to be there for five days to right. watch it that's um, neither here nor there uh, we've also had the, the found footage blockbuster with um, mm. Cloverfield uh, yeah would probably be um, it's been on the uh, monster movie aesthetic. Yeah, kind of a found footage Godzilla uh, in effect. Um, how do you feel about Cloverfield? Because it was that that was um, 
the hype for that, I seem to remember the trailer, I think, is still one of my favourite trailers. Mm. It's a really, really good and effective trailer. Yeah. And obviously um, it had the prime real estate right before Transformers, mm. which was where everyone saw it for the first time. Yeah, and it kind of had that air of mystery around it. Yeah. And then it was, everyone was like, oh, well, what is it? You know, is it, it's, it's definitely not a monster movie. But mm. yeah, it's a monster movie. It's yeah. basically exactly what you thought it was from the trailer. Yeah. Um, um, and then all, all it really has helped do is uh, um, uh, kind of fuel the internet's uh, kind of obsession with J.J. Abraham's uh, uh, pl uh, plot uh, clues and things like the slushy drinks and all that. Yeah. yeah. It's just, yeah nonsense um but the, the the cloverfield does highlight a um one of the major problems with the found footage film is why are these people still filming yeah um and it, you you really have to buy into it don't you uh to kind of believe it i mean blair witch project is a very effective film um and a film i actually genuinely quite like uh it's not anything new it's uh not particularly you know revelatory or interesting uh, but a very effective film that does what it, what it sets out to very well. Um, but you know, they, there's no reason for them to carry on filming other than mm. the fact there's a light on the camera that you, you know, need to turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> for that, so it, it those films do take a leap of faith. The worst film I've ever seen is a found footage film, um, and for a long time, the worst film I'd ever seen was a film called Scuba School, which is a Corey Haim, Corey Feldman forgotten comedy from the early '90s, I think. Which is, I mean, just worse than probably the holocaust it's, it's so bad but like this is topped uh, a couple of years ago i saw it at sheffield a horror festival a, a um greek horror film called subconscious right which was a found footage film which i reviewed it and said that it didn't like resemble found footage as just footage mm. it was just <laughs> it, was, it was so terrible it was completely lacking any kind of context or anything it was just there's like a bit where there's two characters in the conversation and the camera's just pointed at like the the kind of the the window winder or the door of the car and you can barely hear what they're saying and then there's a, a massive revelatory bit later where it's just a close-up of someone's knuckle and it's just it's just a, oh it's horrible it's a yeah it was a very painful 80 minutes yeah um but yeah i mean it, it like we were saying before the podcast that um it's kind of permeated like the world of television something like uh, the office and parks and recreation sticks with the format of it being a someone is coming in to make a documentary about the office they work in but now it's moved to the point where there's clearly more than one camera there mm. and it doesn't really make sense and they follow them outside of the office to do things and just follow the plot and uh it's got to the point where that style suits that show but it's kind of rendered it meaningless yeah and like you said that the thing where they you know have like talking head moments and things they serve really just to kind of easily elucidate what the character is thinking at that time yeah but it doesn't really make sense for why they're so concerned with like the romantic entanglements of these characters or you know why certainly not like seven years in because mm. you know theoretically this documentary about these people in the this office has been going for seven years eight years yeah i'd start to wonder what network they're from <laughs> yeah exactly um and sort of the well, it, it made sense for the original British office because they really stuck to the they really stuck to that aesthetic mm. and they played on the idea that when there's a camera crew around people act differently yeah there's a, is, the David Brent character is someone who acts up entirely for the cameras yeah you kind of get the sense that 
before, so there's that sense that you know when he tells jokes and no one laughs, that there's maybe the hand of the author in that. You know mm-hmm. that they're that the, the people making the document, the fictional documentary, are manipulating the way this man appears. Yeah, uh, which is kind of underlined by the Office Christmas specials when you know he's kind of revealed to be he seems to be actually quite liked and like like a reasonably act like a decent human being when he's. Uh, when he doesn't act up for people like that. Yeah, and the first thing he says in the Christmas special is uh, talking about the show is it was a stitch up and yeah. you know he's edited down to <laughs> he picked they picked the one bit of footage where he headbutts someone yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the face. But um, yeah, it's very interesting that earlier when we talked about paranormal activity, you mentioned uh, catfish because we want to talk a little bit about um, the blurred lines between uh, fact and fiction in documentaries, which are supposed to represent uh, a kind of um, a truth uh, in in filmmaking, a truth of investigative uh, journalism, I suppose. Um, but two films that came out uh, last year, year before, uh, Catfish and Exit Through the Gift Shop, um, have sparked uh, a huge debate as to whether they are genuine or on the level. Um, have you seen both films? I've seen both films. Uh, both very good films. Yep. Um, and where do you kind of stand on on uh, what? Uh, is real and what is fake and does it matter um i think it doesn't matter so much with something like exit through the gift shop which kind of has a broader it is it, trying to tell a sort of broader cultural story about the history of street art mm-hmm. so it doesn't really matter that much if elements of it have been staged although i think that 90 percent of that film is probably real right because Certainly, like the idea of of Mr. Brainwash becoming, you know, a big street artist, you know, success, that is too logistically difficult to actually uh, be um, faked. I feel that's it was like to 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 mount something on that scale. If it was fake, it would be the most the most elaborate hoax in in history because it would have taken years to do. Yeah, exactly. And you know, on a on a like there's too a, many people to spill the beans as well. Exactly, um, I think it matters more for something like Catfish, which is telling a very small story, which doesn't really have a broader cultural context. Maybe there's a, a comment about you know the way in which social networks allow people to mask who they really are and mm-hmm. things like that. But that's not really the point of it. It's more kind of a an uncomfortable sort of thriller in some ways or, or, or a quest for something. And the, the, I think the issue that people had with Catfish and the debate about whether it was fake is because if it was, and if the, the elements that were fake, if they were, um, the filmmakers had to ask themselves some very difficult moral questions and ethical mm. questions because if they did fake certain things, which we, we will go at great pains not to give away, um, then they have really coldly manipulated vulnerable people yeah. into uh, situations for their own ends mm. uh, for the name of entertainment. I, I think that none of those people in Catfish, none of those three guys are good enough actors to pull off some of the things that happen in it, but I definitely think that some of the the bits have either been reshot or staged or... I mean, the bit with the, bit with the postcard where they go out to the house at night and they put the... Is it the little pressed penny that yeah. goes through when they go out to investigate the house that the woman says she lives in? That's re- that, that reeks of being kind of staged, and yeah, I, I certainly think they left a lot of elements out. Um, it feels like something that's very heavily manipulated to suit the to kind of narrow it down to the story that they realised they were telling in the process. Yeah, 
not necessarily I don't think they they went into it expecting to tell that story but I think they are they have you know as you say they've purposely left out details to basically to to, uh, to hide the twist mm-hmm. because I think there's no way the way the internet works and yeah that there's no way that they wouldn't do like basic searches at certain and points all three of them are fairly savvy and um, you know, kind of uh, tech savvy guys. Yeah, I think they they portray themselves as less aware of what's going on than they actually are to suit the idea that they're kind of going sort of down the rabbit hole and investigating a mystery. Mm. When I think in reality they were probably more they probably figured it out reasonably early on, and then kind of retroactively kind of removed the moments from the story when they figured that out to heighten the sense of mystery about it. Um, at last year's Dotfest we had the fantastic Bombay Beach uh, showed, uh, which got its cinematic release uh, a couple of months ago, um, belatedly. Um, and there was a situation where the director came in to do a Q&A and, I mean, there are definite stage bits in it because they do dance routines and things and it's... But she said that they would reshoot things four, five, six times to mm. get the des- desired uh, thing. And then she kind of went on to say that, um, you know, if people didn't think it was a documentary, then that's fine by her. And a lot, I mean, I don't particularly consider that film a documentary. It's, it almost feels like, you know, like in uh, in Cold Blood, the Truman Capote book is a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, is a real, what's it called? Real- True Crime? No, not true crime. Uh, factual fiction. I can't right. remember what it's called, but it's it's, a, it's got its own little uh, its own little kind of subgenre, like a factual novel sort of yeah. thing. Uh, yes, non-fiction documentary novel film documentary. Mm, yeah, we might have to <laughs> kind of make our own department on blockbusters for that. Uh, but um, yeah, do you think it matters? that the lines are blurry or, you know, because in something like The Thin Blue Line, the reconstructed elements are really clear. They're obvious, they're stylistically yeah. different and you know, no one would think that that's CCTV footage or anything like that. Yeah. Do you think it matters to kind of cloudy the waters with uh, things that may or may not be real? Or do you think it has to be kind of stated outright? I think it depends on the kind of story that you're trying to tell. I think if you're trying to do in Bombay Beach, um, depict a community, mm. I don't think that that matters as much um, because you're you're more trying to get a sense of what the place is like and, and you know, a way of life. If you're trying, if you're like, I don't know, campaigning for something or if you're trying to make a uh, a, a documentary that's trying to sort of be about something grander in the world, Mm-hmm. I think that's dishonesty. I think that's the sort of thing you know with you know Michael Moore famously uh in Roger and me the whole thing of, of Roger and me is he's trying to meet the head of General Motors for an interview and the film says that you know he was ignored when in fact he did interview him like uh, he, for he, the purposes of the film and then he left that out because it didn't fit his story. Uh, and he shifted the chronology of the chronology of the film didn't he as well. Yeah. Uh, he does that in all his films and he did it in um uh, bowling for Columbine, the bit with the NRA conference with the cold saying, dead hand bit. Is, yeah, say implying that it yeah. happened right after Columbine. And a lot of people will think that uh, that did happen because mm. um, people will kind of believe anything they should. Yeah, really. I think it's you know it's that that is getting to the point where you're it's dishonesty and sort of sleight of hand that 
is damaging to the overall message of the film because once people realise that it casts into question the broader points you're trying to make mm. um, whereas the way in which those sort of things are done in Michael Moore's films are kind of done um, almost in the hope that like it's presented in such a way that it's clear that this is what he wants you to think is going to happen yeah yeah or, or what you he this is what he wants you to think happened uh, so I think uh, it, it depends on the overall aim of the film really as to whether or not reconstructions or, or muddying the waters um, is a good or bad thing cool um, right I think we've kind of pretty much covered documentaries and and everything really. Yep. Should we should we wrap this up with our um, our regular feature, as in we've gone three podcasts now and not got bored of it. Yeah. Uh, wrapping this up with a uh, a top ten list. What we're going to do is we're going to run down um, our kind of top ten favourite documentaries or best documentaries that we've picked out. Um, I will go as far as to say that I have not been able to narrow it down uh, to a pick of five. Um, so I will just basically go on the ones that are in my head <laughs> right yeah. now. Um, I'll get started with uh, a film I saw very recently, um, and I thought it was kind of spectacularly good. A film called Marwan Call. Have you seen it? Uh, no, it played last year at Dockfest, didn't it? Uh, I think or it was over last year or year before. Yeah, I remember it's, it got good good raves. From it's it. a it's a really really uh, interesting film about a guy who was uh, kind of an alcoholic, kind of barfly type character, and he was kind of a frustrated artist, and he kind of had a lot of his own personal demons, but. Uh, kind of ten years ago ish, he gets uh, attacked in a bar, you know, by five guys. They jump him and they they just beat the living shit out of him within an inch of his life. He's in a coma for like weeks, and when he comes out, he's permanently brain damaged and he's kind of lost a lot of his memory. And his kind of Medicare runs out. His insurance doesn't cover his rehabilitation, so he kind of rehabilitates himself by building an incredibly elaborate model town called Marwinkle. And each of the people in it, which are these are most amazingly detailed kind of World War Two models with like even right down to their guns that cock and have magazines that come out of the handle and stuff. Um, he kind of puts people from his life and himself in this town and plays out a narrative to kind of deal with this trauma of this horrible attack. And he starts taking these amazing photographs of them and and uh, they're so beautiful and richly detailed that kind of an art gallery is interested and they kind of take him on and as a story of, of a kind of uh, when we talked about biographies today of like a person of having a life that's one way up until a certain point and then completely changing and then coming up with this bizarre new second life um, is thoroughly fascinating it's on Netflix I'd recommend uh, watching it it's a really really good piece of work oh cool what have you got? Uh, I'll go for one we talked about earlier, which is Grizzly Man, the Bernie hey. Herzog film, which is, uh, I think, my favourite documentary and probably one of my favourite films. Right. Uh, which I think is absolutely fascinating examination of a man, in this case, uh, Timothy Tread Treadwell, who had this uh, kind of affinity for bears and this belief that he was uh, somehow a protector of the bears, which, um, you know came to a tragic end when he was m killed by him and uh, his, his girlfriend. Who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought that would happen? <laughs> Who'd have thought that would happen? But you know what um, Herzog does, he takes this this, in, this undoubtedly sort of tragic uh, occurrence and uses the footage that Treadwell himself shot. Which to, is amazing, some of it yeah. is really amazing. Yeah, um, to illustrate, you know, Treadwell's worldview. I think he is very interested in the way in which Treadwell 
uh, viewed the world and how, what his relationship with animals, and then also, but also contrasts it against Kurzog's own view, which is that you know that animals are cold and unfeeling mm. and, and have no interest in whether or not we live or die. And I think it's it it's a wonderful film about the sort of the queasy relation, the queasy point at which you know when when people fail to realise the difference between themselves and animals. Mm. And uh, would you be interested in having Werner Herzog narrate your life? It depends on how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> because he does do a, a fine line in documentary voiceover because it's, it's very difficult to take it seriously but at the same time he's kind of uh, saying something that's so kind of, kind of true and raw. There's a, it's a great bit where there's footage of a bear's face and he's mm. like, I do not see a friend. I see a, an animal with a big interest in food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful to hear him him talk for at, at length. Yeah. And he's got a very wry sense of humour, whether or not it's intentional or not. <laughs> you know, I find this one very wryly funny. Um, I'm going to go for an obvious choice uh, for my next one. Um, like you with Grizzly Man, one of your favourite documentaries, also one of your favourite films. Mine, to fit in the same category as Hoop Dreams, uh, yeah. which is a kind of sprawling uh, kind of uh, documentary epic. It's like three hours long, but it kind of uh, doesn't feel that way. It kind of whizzes by story of uh, two kind of uh, black inner city teens who are, are kind of uh, plucked from kind of uh, kind of the life out in the kind of ghetto, if I want to use a shitty phrase to describe it. And we kind of see their journey of them attempting to become uh, professional basketball players. But it's such a kind of rich human story in a, in a milieu that is painted in such a kind of uh, clumsy way by the rest of the media mm. um, and it's just made by like you know kind of middle aged white guy um, but it's it's you know and it's still in that VHS era it's not it's not a shot on film I don't think no. it's shot on video but it's not yet quite in the kind of convenience of digital so they still shot you know thousands of hours of footage and it's yeah. how it's long have they followed them for like six years or something yeah it's, it's a huge quite, amount of time, quite amount of time and um, it's so even though it doesn't end in any way that you think it will, mm. but it's still such a rewarding human story, really. Especially because, you know, I mean, the, the thing that, uh, you know, people say, if you saw the story of Hoop Dreams in a narrative film, in a mm. fictional film, you'd, you'd say it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Like, but the way that story kind of changes over time is amazing, you know, the way the different directions that their lives go. And it is, it's a really testament to the filmmakers that they... You know, they kept checking in with them to see how it was going with the the two lads, and uh, just seeing the insane story that they were able to document as well. Just you know, picking these two kids at random. Yeah, it's kind of almost like a complete documentary in a way. It's got yeah. kind of every element of it that that you find fascinating. That it gives every element that you find in documentary that you can't get from a narrative feature mm. is kind of uh, exemplified by that film. Especially because it started as a short, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Started. And then ended up as a very long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what have you got next? Uh, I'm going for The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. Oh, that's a very, very cool film. Yeah, which is one that I, I think in some ways perhaps uh, blurs the line between fact and reality because uh, I, I think it takes the uh, the character of Billy Graham and uh, perhaps... Paints make, him a little cartoonish. Him, yeah, but more of a villain than he is. But then again, you know, he's such an outlandish character in real life. It's, yeah, he does put himself on the block, doesn't he? Yeah. But it's a it's a wonderful film. It is basically Rambo, uh, not Rambo. It's basically Rocky with uh, with computer games. Yeah. You know, you've got the you know Steve Weeby, the 
underdog who just plays on a on uh, Donkey Kong Jr. in his garage, mm. beats the world records, and then has it taken away from him by this guy who seems to be at the heart of this weird subculture, this uh, gaming uh, retro gaming establishment, and then seeing him try to like wrest his his title back, and it's just a wonderful, it's just a wonderfully strange story again like hoop dreams that just kind of grew out from the general interest that the that, that um seth gordon had in these two guys which then coalesced into this weirdly epic uh story of uh two guys the american everyman who's never achieved yeah. anything and a yeah. kind of brash businessman who's just got a mullet and yeah and seems to own and is implicitly trusted purely because uh, of his prior success, even though there's at least one point in the film in which it seems that he cheats yes. <laughs> quite quite blatantly. Um, and yeah, Steve Weeby is really kind of he is the American everyman, isn't yeah. he? Um, just boundless potential, like everything he can do, anything he has a go at, but yeah. just never seems to quite make it. Um, yeah, that's on Netflix and Love Film, I think. So it's uh, it definitely be. one to, to kind of find out and check out. Um, I'm going to go with uh, something that's so difficult to find that it, I've only ever seen it once. I saw it on TV. It's for a film that won Best Oscar for a documentary. It's very difficult to track down. Uh, it's a film called Murder on a Sunday Morning, which is a French documentary, which in a very verite uh, style, there's no real kind of uh, injection of the filmmakers into it, covers the trial of a young black American teenager who is up the murder of a, uh, a kind of guy's wife and there's a wit one witness who's key and he identifies this person as the, the shooter now the reason the film is exceptionally good it's it's very kind of uh, well paced um, they don't try and kind of get anything out of it like they don't try and uh, make a kind of courtroom thriller out of it yeah but it's very good because about a third of the way in you realise how high the stakes are because you realise that this is taking place I think it's in Florida where if the kid's found guilty um, he's going to go to the chair and it is an unbearably tense film to watch um, but done with such kind of subtlety that you don't kind of realise you're being drawn into this story um, it, it's very difficult to find it, but it's exceptionally good. I would recommend it to everyone. If you can find it, I think it goes under its French name mm. most of the time, which is um, Murder on a Sunday Morning, <laughs> <laughs> I believe. Uh, so uh, if you can find that, then, then you know. I think I've seen it. I think I watched it in school. Like, wow. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think it, it won like yeah. best documentary in like the 90s, I'm pretty sure it yeah. did. Either that or the early 2000s, but yes, seek it out. Okay, uh, I'm going to go for a Maisel Brothers film. We mentioned Salesman earlier, but I'm going to say Grey Gardens, right. which is their film about um, Little and Big E.D. Beale, the uh, <laughs> cousins of uh, Jackie Bouvier, uh, knee uh, Kennedy, um, which is um, a really interesting uh, example of the cinema verite style. Um, in which uh, the Maisels and their crew basically would go and visit these uh, two women in their sort of uh, in Grey Gardens, which was this sort of decrepit uh, old house in Rhode Island, I think, or, or, or in the New England area, yeah. which was kind of slowly falling apart, and that's why it became known was because there was this uh, article in which uh, Jackie Kennedy went to, um, or she may have been Onassis at that point, um, 
went to kind of visit and try and clean up this house that had just fallen into disrepair. Mm. And uh, it's just it's just uh, really interesting seeing the way in which these two women are kind of trapped in a cycle of kind of love and hate that they can't possibly break away from because you know uh, the younger the, the daughter of, of the two always talks about how she was a debutante in the 30s and you know she uh, you know was could leave any time you know and she but she's clearly a little bit delusional and you know she blames her mother for everything but then she also says you know she couldn't leave her mother because she wouldn't do anything without her and two, she, two of the most deeply eccentric characters in film history yeah and there, uh, you know, there's a certain camp quality to uh, mm. to, to little Edie's, uh, you know, outrageous outfits that she walks around in, <laughs> and at one point saying that some minor thing that's happened to her is the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone in America. <laughs> yeah, um, but I I think it's absolutely it's absolutely great. But you know, that their eccentricities can be a bit much to take because I remember watching it with my sister, and she made it about half an hour in and then <laughs> walked out she said that you know I get it I guess I get what's happening but you know it's it, I, it's a really fascinating film didn't they make a narrative version of that film with Drew Barrymore a yes of years they did afterwards? a couple of years HBO did it a few yeah. years ago uh, it's meant to be quite good mm. yeah and they also did um, there's also a sort of supplementary documentary called The Beals of Grey Gardens which I don't think the Maisels are involved with although right. it, it, if you get the Criterion version of Grey Gardens they are often bundled together so I think it's uh, that one might be less of a verite thing and more kind of contextual and putting them in some sort of broader uh, frame of reference right okay but Grey Gardens is, is a great film great cat piss movie as well as cats pissing all the time all the time loads of cats um, my next film I'm going to choose is uh, probably the most depressing film on my list which is a reasonably depressing list uh, is um, I am, hang on, how many have I got left? I think you've got two alright I've scrubbed the really depressing one I'm going to go for the really happy one I'm going to go for American Movie oh yeah um, which is um, not available over here but a uh, wonderful film I taped uh, off TV um, a while back one of those documentaries where I'd probably include Anvil in the, the story of Anvil in this where the characters are so uh kind of bizarre and uh, but yet beautifully realised that you can't accept they're real people almost <laughs> uh, and the American Movie is a story of um, two guys I think they live in Minnesota and they basically just kind of drink and, and they do paper rounds as their job or one of them just seems to exist on you know lottery scratch cards and they're trying to make a film and uh, it's one of the best films I think I've ever seen about the filmmaking process about how hard it is to do and um, uh, how you kind of need to be slightly unhinged to to get away with it, uh, and he's this kind of kind of trailer park coppola, and he, he he makes a very short horror film, and just the the journey they go through to kind of uh, to make this film is is kind of it turns uh, touching and hilarious, and and the character of Mike Shank, who plays the lead characters, plays who is the lead character's best friend. He's a kind of like acid fried ex kind of rocker who is uh, reliable to a point, as in he'll always be there, but he won't do what you tell him to do and has forgotten what you asked him to come for. <laughs> um, and he is a, a fantastic character, if I can call him a character, he's a real person. Um, but yeah, American Movie, and a kind of a kind of postscript to that, the guy in the film, I really forget his name, should have researched this, um, who, who makes the films, then went on to have a kind of 
a kind of a career as a, as a bit part actor in other films. I think he was in. There's a film with Jet Li and Bob Hoskins. I think is it called the One? Uh, no, that's the one with uh, Jason Statham. What's the one with Jet Li and Bob Hoskins? Uh, it's called Danny the Dog. In some places, it's got a. Uh... He's not in that. He's in the one with Statham. I think he's like right. got a small part in it. Right. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a nice little kind of fitting coda to uh, to the story. But yeah, American Movie would be my uh, my fourth choice. Okay. I'm going to go for a very recent one. It was released last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only seen it once, but I think it, it ranks up there as one of the, the most uh, beautiful uh, documentaries I've ever seen. It's called We Were Here, right. which is a documentary about the um, AIDS epidemic in San Francisco in the 1980s. It consists of uh, interviews with the people who lived in San Francisco at the time, and it's a, it's a, a really um, effective sort of cultural history and dissection of the entirety of... The, the AIDS outbreak. It starts off and it's, you know, these, these people talking about what drew them to San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, how it became this haven for sort of the outcasts and, you know, the people who uh, weren't accepted at home, couldn't really find anywhere else in, in America that would accept them for who they were. And kind of uh, does a really good job of, of kind of drawing the sort of the, the haven that it became for all these sort of lost souls. Um, and then it goes... Uh, you know, through through to the eighties, you know, talks uh, to some extent about sort of Harvey Milk and what he meant to the people of of uh, the Castro district, and then you know through the the early stages of the of AIDS when people didn't know what it was, and you know, p- talking to people who were either friends of people who who had the disease or or, or are survivors uh, still going today, and um, it's just it's just really fascinating. It's really moving seeing them all talk about their friends and about what a terrifying time it was because obviously you know we're sort of 30 years removed from it AIDS hasn't gone away but it's we're, we're in a different place where we know more about the disease now so mm-hmm. we don't I don't think anyone kind of born from the mid 80s onwards really understands the, the sort of the terror of the time and it does a really good job of of uh, of communicating that and, and of the sort of the way in which the community came together to try and you know protect itself from what was going on and it's a it's, it's a really really beautiful film cool i've not seen that one i'm definitely going to kind of seek that out um the last film that i'm going to pick is one that i really tried desperately not to mention when we were talking about reconstruction and kind of alternate takes on the documentary because uh, this one has a very very interesting take on the documentary um i've gone for waltz with bashir oh yeah which um is a film ostensibly about um, an Israeli, ex-Israeli soldier who um, is kind of dealing with the, the kind of trauma, the fallout from um, his time serving with the Israeli army in the Lebanese war, I think it is. Yes. Um, but the film is presented entirely as an animation and it is, some of it is kind of rotoscoped type animation, some of it's a bit more kind of flash animation. Um, and it, it kind of uses the framework of him having a reoccurring nightmare about being chased by dogs um, and uses that jumping off point to explore this um, kind of backstory. It's in the same way as like the Arbor does, it kind of uses the interviews verbatim and then illustrates those in a really fascinating way. And the, the animation is beautiful and the story is interesting really really interesting and there's there's an amazing bit at the end where they show you actual footage of what they're talking about and it's 
as odd as having an animated sequence just dropped in a regular film, a live mm. action film, because um, it just really takes you out of it, but kind of all at the same time strikes home as to what they're talking about and what was the state. Um, I think that's a, an absolutely magnificent film, probably one of the best films of the last kind of 10, 15 years. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's it's, it's really fantastic. Um, I think it really pushes what, you know, the, the definition of a documentary is, and, you know, it's got all of the kind of the visceral quality of a narrative film because it's got such huge scope you know there's dream sequences there's you know gunfights and things like that there's moments that are you know I mean the title Waltz with Bashir refers to sort of dancing with a gun um, you know and there's a sort of a strangely balletic scene in mm -hmm. which a man like runs through the street under heavy fire firing his gun into the air um, it's just the sort of thing that you couldn't do in a traditional documentary but it also has you know this kind of broader cultural sense of you know what what that war meant to the people who fought it that you probably couldn't get across in a narrative film so mm. I think you're right that's a, that's an absolutely fantastic one and okay. what have you got to round us off I'm going to go for um, Hearts of Darkness the a filmmaker's apocalypse which is all about the uh, insane uh, journey that Francis Ford Coppola and his uh, his crew went on in trying to make Apocalypse Now mm-hmm which um, you know the, the apocalypse now shoot is is legendary for everything that went wrong and kind of the way in which everyone involved went slightly mad. Most of all, Coppola, who you know said he didn't film Vietnam, he lived it. Yeah. Well, the the film starts with an interview. Well, it's the famous thing. Was it at Cannes? It was said. at Cannes when they premiered it. Yeah. yeah, and he said um, we had access to too much money, too much equipment, uh, and little by little we went insane. Yeah, and that that's how the film starts. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's. It's just got Pretty spectacular. It's got wonderful, you know, footage of you know the onset catastrophes, and it just uh, it just captures the feel of what it must have been like to be on the set of that film, um, and living through each minor disaster and major disaster uh, perfectly. And you know, it really does add another layer to you know when you watch the film, it just throws such an amazing light on this this great work of of art that resulted from it you know being able and usually you know that the, the problem you get with film you know documentaries about film is they kind of take away the magic of it somewhat you know that's mm. why so often making of are just supplementaries on dvds they're not necessarily the most interesting thing but you know that shoot was so insane that it becomes the the, the, the documentary about it is uh, its own masterpiece in itself. Yeah, it definitely stands up alongside Apocalypse Now, and mm. it's almost as if um, it re kind of should be shown as a companion piece. Yeah, and you kind of to, to understand the other because, like I say, there's so much kind of said about it and written about the making of Apocalypse Now, and it's kind of slipped into folklore. And but to get a real uh, kind of, it's almost like sending a war uh, like footage, uh, a war filmmaker into. A, a war they've actually got a filmmaker and sent them into making this film about a war and it's yeah. very has a kind of reportage style to it that, it's like they've been embedded yes they've been, they are um, they are yeah kind of in, uh, ensconced in, in this kind of madness um, so that, I have to say we've got ten absolutely super documentaries there yeah um, all uh, of which people should check out they should um, unless you've seen them in which case probably watch them again um, and uh, you know we'll end this with the caveat that we always do if we haven't mentioned it it, it doesn't mean anything to no. do uh, it with documentaries. If we've not talked about it, it uh, is not important. So just you know, forget it. Um, but yeah, we'll be uh, covering Doc Festival. I will be because you'll be in uh, the states. 
um, but I will be uh, kind of uh, uploading some kind of interviews and, and uh, some views from the festival there. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, it's goodbye for me. And it's goodbye for me. And goodbye for me.